Hi, this is Feed, Play, Love, the parenting podcast that you can fit in your pocket. Short, informative and interesting interviews about everything from toilet training to how emotion coaching works. I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. The next interview is one of the diamonds from our archive. Enjoy. We all want our children to flourish, but what's the right pathway to their future success and happiness? Andrew Fuller is an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne and is the author of Unlocking Your Child's Genius, How to Discover and Encourage Your Child's Natural Talents. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Really well, thank you. Thank you. Can you define for us what genius means to you? Yeah, we've gotten to this really weird idea about being a genius and we've forgotten the original meaning of it, which was that people have a genius. And so within each person, there's a creative spirit, a passion. And so what we've done in modern times is to equate it with exceptional abilities. But really, I think that's a distortion of the idea. In fact, many, many people have particular areas where they're passionate, creative, or really driven by, and they're the things that are going to lead them towards success for them. Because really, in life, passion is is incredibly important as an ingredient towards success. Why do you think that time outside of the school is more important than time spent inside school for developing this kind of genius? Well, time in, time in school is certainly important, but we know that children only spend 15% of their waking time uh, in school. So the vast majority of their waking time is at home in the care of their parents or their grandparents or other people learning about life. And so one of the things that we've done often is handed over the education of our children, perhaps a little too much to schools. Schools are fine. Schools are doing a pretty good job by and large, but really we've forgotten then about the other part of that, which is what kids learn at home. And so that's the, that's re- the reason for writing Unlocking Your Child's Genius, to really think about what parents and grandparents can both do to really f- help kids to flourish. There's kind of this seesaw, I think, as a parent, I find. On one hand, I love that kind of advice and I love the idea of exploring what my daughter and son will be passionate about in their lives. And then there's the other side of the seesaw that's saying, well, are they going to get to school and you haven't taught them enough about reading or their numbers and are they going to be behind and will that affect their confidence? What's your advice when parents are thinking about education in that way. Ah, so yes, that's a, that's a really good point because the idea of the book is not to turn parents and grandparents into quasi-teachers without the qualifications. In fact, the learning that can happen at home is much, much more important than that. Now, we know that children's brains, human brains, develop from the bottom towards the top and then they mature from the right towards the left. And the major implication of that is that the part of the brain that is to do with experience, hands-on, pictures, sounds, that part of your life, matures before the part to deal with ideas and concepts. And by and large, I would say we live in a time in which young people are information rich, there's lots of information they can get, but they're experience poor. And so one of the things to think about in a very busy life is how do I slowly over time plan to expand my child's repertoire of life experiences? Because that's the thing that's going to be that sort of storehouse that will set them up for learning. And later on, of course, we want kids to be passionate about learning. 
Now, little kids are already passionate about learning. Little kids are like roosters. They wake up in the morning, they want to ask why. Why is, it, why is the sky not green? You know, why doesn't the moon shine during the day? All that kind of stuff that's really hard to answer. And then it gets a bit sort of extinguished, I think, because we turn learning into a job. And because we turn into a, a job, we make it into hard work. And so it becomes something people don't want to do. And yet learning is great fun. In fact, you know, learning is fantastic fun. And people, once they can take away that pressure, they get excited. In fact, we all get excited about learning new ideas, kids especially. It When you're saying this, it makes me think about how someone once talked to me about science. And they're talking about science and how children love science naturally because they're curious curiosity about the world that was science to them and I said but that's not that's not how I understand science and she said that's because of how you learned it at school and this idea of there being one way to to learn and to study so how do we not kill that joy when they start learning in a more formalised environment. Well, we've, we live in a nation where we've got more focused on measuring performance than on accessing potential. And so we want to think about how do we help our kids to access their own potential. Now, it's hard when you're a child to see what your strengths are. So really, it's the parents and the grandparents really sitting down and figuring out what is this kid passionate about? What are they interested in? What do they concentrate on? So in Unlocking Your Child's Genius, I talk about the idea that our smarts or our intelligence is a bit like a multi-flavoured pizza. And in that multi-flavoured pizza, for all of us, some slices are big and rich and have lots of ingredients and others are a bit puny and barren and not so much good at that. But, and, and so schools, of course, try and make you good at everything. And that's their job. But really, in life, success doesn't work that way. Success works by figuring out what you're good at and doing more of it, and what you're not so good at, you wouldn't want to do too Outsourcing. Exactly, exactly. You wouldn't want me repairing your car, I can tell you that for, for the starter. You know, and so it's important for you to learn that. But you're not going to learn that at school, and you're not going to learn that yourself, or very rarely. It's because you have a parent or a grandparent that says, hey, you know, you draw really well, or you're a great dancer, or whatever it might be. And then starting to build on that, because at the end of the day, you may not get, always get it right, which is the right area, but you want to have a kid who's passionate about learning. Because if you're passionate about learning, then basically the rest is fairly easy. You're listening to Kindling Conversation and we're speaking with Andrew Fuller, the author of Unlocking Your Child's Genius, How to Discover and Encourage Your Child's Natural Talents. Andrew, it sounds like actually that's a lot of fun for the parents as well. Like I'm imagining in my head um, the sorts of things like perhaps going to a concert. Even uh, my husband loves the idea of taking our kids to music concerts and I'm not so keen on it, but that's what he wants to do with them. I like the idea of taking them to musicals. You do in your book list at the end of um, chapter two, I think it is, some really practical examples of focused on different age groups, what you can do with kids at different age groups that sort of expand their levels of experience. Um, But they're not all as um, highfalutin as going to a music concert or a Mm. musical, Mm. are they? Can you talk us through some of the practical examples? So in the book, I I try and talk about activities that I think really stretch the minds of two to four-year-olds, five to sort of eight-year-olds, eight to 11 years, and then 12 to 18. So different stages of life. So my hope for this book is that it it hangs around people's households, you know, being a bit dog-eared and used because it's something you can kind of go back to, you know, throughout the journey as you're raising kids. But the idea 
idea really is, and I, I do that lots of, in lots of the chapters, have at the end of the, those activities, but they can be small things like, you know, going outside, lying on the grass and looking at the clouds and sort of trying to make up a story about what that shape might be. It could be, as you know, camping in the back garden. It could be making a trail through the garden or the local park and kind of following it or tracking, looking for animal tracks or, or bird footprints. or you know. So it's very small things, making collections of seashells. So these aren't necessarily costly things, nor are they necessarily time-consuming, nor they have to be done in one burst. So they're just things that you kind of take the time to really start to think about. Now, when kids are little, it's probably more about playing with them and following their lead as much as you possibly can. And then as they get slightly older, so I'm thinking here at about six or seven years of age, the, the job of parents becomes more to lead them and stretch them further. So basically, we know that at that stage, the brain develops a, a greater level of sophistication than it had earlier. But it's only when you have an adult that says, have a look at this part here, or have a look at it from this perspective, or come around here and see this side of it, that kids can really experience it. So in Unlocking Your Child's Genius, have a formula, which is that experience plus reflection equals learning. So the experiences are very important. And then what happens is you need to discuss them, to have a reflection around it. What, what did you like? What did you not like? What was the best thing about that? What was the worst thing about it? And by doing that, that embeds in a child's brain, it embeds in all of our brains, that sense of learning. And that learning then becomes part of what stretches their heads, really. And part of what I found when I was reading part of this book was it almost felt like, I know you're talking about children and I'm relating it to my children as I'm reading it, but I almost felt like you were talking to me as an adult as well in terms Good. of, <laughs> well, in terms of understanding your own potential. Is yeah. that, so is that something that you were trying to do? Yes, I was because lots of people, people are incredibly talented. People are incredibly able to do things, but they often talk their way out of it. And so quite often we hear the limitations of parents being inadvertently transmitted down to the kids. Oh, don't worry, I wasn't much good at numbers either. Or don't worry, you know, I'm not particularly sporty, so probably you won't be. And that's often just a lie, really, that basically we've made ourselves had this, this sort of comment or statement of limitation and that's ruled our lives because somebody said to you at some stage, you know, whatever it was, you're not a great not singer. Not good at maths. Or, well, yeah, whatever <laughs> it is. That's right. And so, so you know, and maths is a really interesting one to think about because, of course, what we know is the part of the brain that processes maths and the part of the brain that processes music are exactly the same. Really? And so you see all these people who are musical who don't think they're mathematical. And yet we know music is a mathematical language. And because no one's ever made that bridge and connected these two things together, they see one as an area they're good at and the other one they're not. But it's not true. Actually, the, you see lots of people who are musically gifted who can also be incredibly mathematically gifted. But because it wasn't a bridge that was made, they've never seen it. Yeah, it's and, really interesting. And so how much, um, without pointing the blame too squarely in any one direction, but how much does the way we have approached school education have to do with um, the way children define themselves in their learning? I'm thinking about the tests that we take, um, even if we're not looking at NAPLAN, just the yearly tests and if you do well or you don't do well. I think by the time I left year 12 when I was going through school about 20 years ago, I think I did well because I learned how to write an essay by rote. 
Mm. It was, that was how you, def- but I still thought of myself as quite good in English because I could do a good English essay, but really I just learned how to answer the question the way I was asked to answer the question, you know? So how much is the way we've developed our education system limiting people and students? Yeah, I feel for a lot of teachers because we've focused so much on making teachers accountable which means that we measure kids all the time. And I think we test them way, way too much. And so that means the whole focus of school is on the assessment of performance rather than the accessing and activation of potential. And because of that, kids then rank themselves. In fact, with the NAPLAN, they're actively ranked, aren't they? And so they know exactly where they stand in relation to Johnny or Jenny on the other side of the class. And some kids, by this is why we get in some schools, the grade three phenomenon, where basically kids by grade three have decided school's not for me and give up. And they never recover from that moment. And not coincidentally, that's, of course, when NAPLAN first kicks in. So it is a bit of a disaster. And so NAPLAN, I think we need to treat with the derision that it deserves. It's a test that kids should do, but if you get panicked about it and make it mean more than it's not an intelligence test, it's not even a measure of how well you'll do finally at school, it's certainly not a measure of how well you'll do in a career, it's just a test. And it's a test developed for a system rather than to measure an individual child's potential. So if we get panicked about it and put too much panic and emphasis on it for kids, then of course we're, we're leading ourselves to a disaster really. And there's not a lot of, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of room for parents to move on that front because everyone's getting the NAPLAN test and however the society is responding to it seems like it's just imposed on the kids whether you're trying to instill calmness in them or not. Well, you can opt out. Oh, you can? Yes, I didn't realise you can that. say, no, I don't want my child to sit for NAPLAN. And in fact, because NAPLAN doesn't have any implications for the individual teaching of your child, you're quite justified in doing that because really it's a pointless test. And um, look, as a a side issue, you write about mistakes in your book. It wasn't until I think I was in my early 20s working in in an advertising industry where my mistakes when I made them were costly and massive (laughs) that I actually understood that the only way I learnt my job was through making mistakes. Seems like an awfully old age to understand that mistakes are okay. Do you think we as a society generally undervalue mistakes? We live in an incredibly exciting time in world history, but it's a time, of course, when the great discoveries of the future aren't going to happen because we already know them. So it's actually inquiring into the things that we don't know how to do. And so as you inquire into things you don't know how to do, you inevitably going to get things wrong. So to come back to our earlier discussion about science, here's where the scientific method is really useful to teach kids because science should be just about life. And in science, in the scientific method, of course, you come up with an idea, we call it a hypothesis, and then you sort of, we test that out, we call it an experiment, and based on the results of that experiment, we change our idea. And so mistakes then are an essential part of that scientific method. But we don't think about mistakes that way, or we don't teach kids that. And so because we don't do that, they they see it as basically a, a measure of how well they're doing or how smart they are or how hard they've worked, all of which are wrong. And so if you don't know how to make a mistake, you can't really be the genius you truly are. You can't you can't be creative. You know, it's it's highly unlikely that, that Beethoven, for example, started his uh his ninth symphony by going da 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 You know, probably went da 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 no it didn't work. Da 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 no da da you know. He had to muck around with it for a fair while before he came up with the right opening. And that's true for us all. That we have to make mistakes 
and fine-tune things before we can get them right. And school, of course, is the time to learn that. That's the time when kids should be most daring. But it's when somebody says to a child, oh, you know, you painted a purple duck, but ducks aren't purple, that you kind of squish this out of them. And how much does technology play into that? I was just thinking that part of um, the way we live now is that answers and the right answers are pretty much a Google click away. Mm. I mean, if you've got the right source, of course. How much does technology make us want that, or children want that instant gratification instead of that testing period of working out what is going to be successful? Yeah, technology is a really mixed thing. And the advantage of, of technology, of course, because kids are dealing with much more information than they previously are, their brains are much more stimulated. So we know that on average, the average young person today is 40% brighter than a child was in 1950, just through you know, electronic stimulation. It's, it's been incredible. So there's lots and lots of good stuff in terms of technology. The bad thing, of course, is that it sort of insists there's one right answer and you just race towards getting that. And we know in life, life is not that neat. And so you need to kind of learn how to sort of play with the pros and cons of ideas. And that, of course, is best done in conversation with people who aren't judging you, who are tossing around ideas, playful ideas, because we can think about how how we can then kind of connect things. Now, one of the things that is important to understand is that human beings don't think in ideas. Even though we all think we think in ideas, we don't. We actually think in patterns of ideas, and those patterns of idea we call in psychology schema. But as its most simple form, a schema is how one idea is similar to another idea, but different than another idea. So you might feel hot today, and basically that's similar to another hot day that you had last week, but basically it's different than the cold day that we had three days ago, that kind of thing. And so... Helping then kids to stretch their minds involves you having conversations where you talk about similarities and differences. So you might come up with an idea and you might and I might say, well, that dinosaur is really interesting. What other sort of dinosaur is that similar to? How would that be different from this type of animal? And because you're having those sorts of conversations, you're making links between things. And we call that link, linking understanding, really. And that understanding is deep thinking. Now, you don't get that from Google. <laughs> <laughs> no, you certainly you don't. don't. No, you get that from conversations with people who aren't testing you or judging you. Now, one of the other things you talk about in your book is how important perseverance is. I can't even begin to imagine how I can teach my three-year-old perseverance. Have you got any tips? Well, perseverance is something that is you can teach them in all sorts of ways. Uh, the first way are, are games like Simon Says. You know, where, you know, your first impulse is not always the right answer. So it's teaching them how uh, stop, start sort of things. Um, let's run to the corner and then we'll stop. Let's, um, let's clean up the room, these toys as quickly as possible, and then we'll have an ice cream. So it's sort of racing to do things and then stopping and changing is the first thing to do. The second thing is to really help them to learn how to anticipate outcomes. So growing vegetables would be a good example cooking, preparing, you know, simple dishes would be a good idea, playing card games, board games, and ultimately probably having um, a creativity corner in your house is a really good idea to have so that you have somewhere in your house where kids can get mucky, where they can take on projects and they can start a project and they can think about it and they can add to it over time 
They don't have to kind of finish it and pack it all away at the end of the day. It's somewhere, somewhere they can leave things as works in progress because we're all works in progress. And that teaches them not only further creativity imagination, it teaches us that we can improve on ideas as we give them time and it teaches them persistence. Well, that's a good start for me anyway. <laughs> Thank you. You say that part of unlocking your child's genius is also teaching them to give back to the world, to help change it to be a better place. Can you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Yes. So we all want our kids to be happy. And we know that happiness has been something that's been debated for 3,000 years. And the debate really began with two guys, called one's called Epicurus and one's called Aristotle. Epicurus came along first and he said, well, the way to have a happy life is that you increase the number of things that are pleasant in your life and you decrease the number of things that are unpleasant. Now, this really caught on as an idea. People liked this a lot. <laughs> this meant that they could kind of, you know, do all the things they wanted and don't do all the things you don't want to do. Then along came Aristotle and said, no, 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 Epicurus, that's not right. Epicurus, what you need to do instead is you need to do things that are meaningful for you that are of value to other people. And 3,000 years later, we can very confidently tell you the results of the outcome of that study is that Aristotle was right. So basically by doing things that are meaningful for yourself, but also have some benefit to other people is a much surer way of attaining life happiness than just acquiring more plasma televisions and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's then thinking about, well, how as a family do we contribute? It might be to the, the pensioner down the road that we best prepare a, a meal for once a week. Or it could be that we just go and say hello to the neighbours or we look after their dog or maybe we, you know, donate to a, a cause or maybe we give some time to some, you know I, know, I know families aren't sort of hanging around with lots of spare time, but at the same time, just thinking about what good can I do in the world often has a greater payoff for us than it does for the people we do good for. Andrew, that's a really lovely place to end. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with it's us. It's been a delight, Thank you. Andrew Fuller, his book is called Unlocking Your Child's Genius, How to Discover and Encourage Your Child's Natural Talents, and we'll put a link to it up on our website. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.